1: Putin gives his big speech about how, you know, Ukraine really, you know, has
0: very close historical ties to Russia, you know, and, and whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's full of half truths and some of it's true, some of it's not. Whatever. It's propaganda. propaganda. Yeah. But it was meant as a message. Mm-hmm. And what did the US do in response? They invited Zelensky to Washington a couple months later to yeah. say, "Dude, don't worry. NATO that's still totally on the cards for you. Don't we- worry."
1: We-
2: what is up everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on plague day. (laughs) I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. (laughs)
1: All
2: right, everybody, this is In Liberty and Health, episode number 166. I think it is. I, I I usually like guess these numbers, but I'm normally spot on with them. So, anyways, today I have Joe Sully's Mullen with me today. How you doing, dude? I'm good, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, um, you are somebody that I've read quite a bit about, and I listened to you on Patrick's show and a couple other shows, as I told you before we were on air. And um, I really enjoy your writing style. You're very very thorough, and you're very very knowledgeable on a subject that I'm quite passionate about because it seems like a lot of people are very misinformed on it, which is China. But um, we'll kind of work our way there. So um, real quick, why don't you just give yourself a, a decent introduction?
0: Okay, thanks, Kyle. Uh, I'm a political scientist, uh, a journalist, a uh, graduate student uh, in my last uh, semester at the University of Missouri. I'm in the economics department there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do a lot of independent research and analysis on a variety of topics. Um, If you Google me, you'll see that I've had articles published in historical journals about like 17th century European great power politics Mm -hmm. to um, Federal Reserve monetary policy for various macro publications. Um, I I think in terms of what's important for possibly listeners uh, of your show is um, in terms of foreign affairs, I really I'm. As as I said in the introduction, I'm a political scientist and and an economist. I don't have any background in international relations theory. Um, Just as the unipolar moment started to disintegrate and uh, things got more and more dangerous, and especially as I started to think that China was getting really singled out um, uh, as the next you know quote unquote pure competitor for a Cold War 2.0, I really felt as I read in the media and, and online and things, no one was standing up and Pointing out what I felt were fairly obvious points, uh, just from what I knew, uh, being just generally interested in, in China, as a matter of fact. Um, so was back about 2019. And, and a couple of years of research later, I started writing articles. The first one was at the Mises Institute, which um, your listeners may be familiar with. It's a great, great place for information if you go there. Um, it was called China Won't Be Taking Over the World. And uh, it was it was fairly controversial, and, and it, it was actually the most uh, successful piece i had ever written. And uh, so I started doing more stuff on that topic. And finally, I wrote a, a rather large paper on the topic. If people are interested in more of a comprehensive, more comprehensive than you can have in a single conversation, an extremely long article I wrote called The Fake China Threat at the Libertarian Institute, which is a, a very detailed summary. Of, of my positions
2: yeah so i remember reading through that article i believe i made it the whole way through but you're absolutely right it was very very dense and um yeah it's part of the reason why i wanted to talk to you today is because you're so well informed on this stuff so i guess before we kind of work our way there um I'm not that much of a history geek as in like I don't know jack shit about history I probably should know more but um you brought up um writing stuff in historical papers about um 17th century great power um competition essentially mm-hmm. um is that what really kind of sparked your interest in what is happening today because the U.S.'s um national state um department strategy the national defense strategy, sorry. Um, they list out that the twentieth century is or the twenty first century, I apologize, is going to be based on great power struggles between the u s, Russia, and China. Um does that parallel does that is that kind of what got you interested in learning more about these topics? Well,
0: I, I was a big history buff growing up. um my my grandpa, uh, was was one of the one of the fellows who went into World War II and then went into Korea and was and was very involved in politics thereafter. So oh, wow. going over to his house every Sunday and after school, it was it was always story time, and, and so I had a, a very intense interest in history and uh, and in, in sort of in one of the things that was interested in was how states are formed, how nationalism uh, developed. And I'm actually working on a book chapter right now for a, a compendium of essays on the subject that'll be published next year. Um, but uh, yeah, um, great power competition. So if you go back a couple of years, uh, Eldridge Coolby Eldridge, I think I think his name was he was he was part of the Trump team. Mm-hmm. He was the one who first published the 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 national security paper about using, you know, great the return of great power competition. I don't think it 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 ever completely went away. Um, you can see it all the way up through you know the seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth centuries. Uh, you know, obviously, World War One was was a great power conflict uh, par excellence, and then uh, the aftermath, the failed resolution of that, led to World War II. and then you had the the bipolar uh, you know superpowers, um, and then afterward we have this odd moment that that Charles Krauthammer called the unipolar moment, uh, which was where America was was essentially uncontested um beneath the surface of that it it seems clear that great power politics didn't ever go away um just just to give you a a couple of examples um because i I don't i'll use i'll use uh europe as as the example here simply because uh i think we'll spend most of our time talking about china but much of what i'm going to say i think is germane uh to the topic at hand Mm -hmm. um just just to give you an example um the wars in the balkans if if we think about world war one and what what ultimately led to the spark that it ignited world war one it was the gradual disintegration of the ottoman empire in southern europe mm-hmm. as its hold in the 19th century over the balkans collapsed uh, essentially you had both austria and russia austro-hungary that is uh competing for influence among the newly emerged states um when the cold war ended you essentially had the same thing you had an unfreezing of all of these very deep-rooted ethnic i'm not going to call them points of potential conflict but it's certainly uh, a very very diverse place the balkans Mm -hmm. um it's where my family comes from modern day croatia they actually immigrated um in like 1890 so so still under the austro habsburgs when they when they immigrated but um yeah i don't think it ever went away um russia was very uh alienated uh by by NATO's actions. That was NATO's first out-of-area mission. was was in Bosnia, and then, of course, the unilateral uh, redrawing of borders uh, in in Serbia uh, to detach Kosovo. uh, Right there, before the end of the century. Uh, So, no, I mean, Russia protested each time. There was nearly a gunfight between uh, NATO and Russia forces at the airport at Pristina. There. I mean, uh, the Taiwan Straits crisis, 1995. So mm-hmm. it's clear that it was always simmering there. And the terror war happened. And that kind of obscured things because, uh, you know, the U.S. declared war on terror. Mm-hmm. Terror. That's an odd thing, right? By now, we've all had time to think about how ridiculous an idea that is. Declare war on terror. It's not a place. It's not a person. Mm-hmm. There's no way, way to win that war. It's an ideology. Yeah. It, it is an In ideology. Theory. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you know, it's not something you can specifically occupy and and mm-hmm. you know not fight in a, in a conventional sense. But now that China during that time really uh, China to bring it back to China, China it was was engaged in sort of a, a waiting game. Um, they had basically turned on the Soviet Union uh, in the late nineteen sixties. The 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 fracture actually started earlier with the death of Stalin because Khrushchev. Uh, well, we don't even need to go into that. Um, anyway, uh, so they they flipped on the on the soviets and gradually started to get more and more privileges uh mm-hmm. within the american uh system i'm just going to call it the american system um so they got most favored nation status they got wto membership they got all these great things uh technology transfers they grew very rich and as they grew rich they started to think more about other interests besides not having you know a poor impoverished country that was potentially very very vulnerable to pretty pretty lame forms of 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 uh you know i mean think about it uh, taiwan is 80 miles off their coast imagine the united states really wanted to have cuba is there anyone who could ever stop them no way <laughs> right. no way not a chance it'd
2: be a, a hilarious
0: idea to, to not think of someone trying to intervene but since since 1955 at least mm-hmm. the chinese communist party has wanted taiwan back it's 80 miles off the coast and right. all it's taken is just the the smallest bit of saber rattling by the United States to get them to back down. Mm -hmm. Well, that's just because their relative power differentials were so great. Now that is not the case. Now, I don't think there's any danger of China projecting its military forces much beyond its border. But Taiwan, if it really wanted to, I think they've shown now that they have the area denial capabilities to affect a blockade of the island. And I think that alone is, is, is reason enough to have an open debate. That's all I'm asking for at this point mm-hmm. is an open debate over our Taiwan policy, because it went from we don't know what we're going to do. You don't know either to right. Joe Biden four times now saying, no, we'll definitely fight and, and Congress down. and Congress trying to give hi- give him or whoever is the president the authority to unilaterally go to war over mm-hmm. Taiwan. And we haven't had any public discussion of this. And if and when they're confronted about their apparent change in policy, they deny that it's even a change in policy.
2: Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really a gaslighting of the American people and of China, because once again, we're told that we're supposed to have this, you know, strategic ambiguity where, okay, you don't know what we'll do in the situation if China attacks Taiwan and Taiwan you don't know, you know, you don't know what we're going to do. So this is the goal to just kind of leave it up to them. And, you know, once again, nobody knows what's going to happen, but now it really seems like they departed from the strategy. And like, I don't know if you were Z, Jinping, I have trouble saying his name, but um, mm-hmm. like when you have, basically a country saying that you're committing genocide and that you're saying you're going to defend somewhere that they consider their territory right off their coast eventually you have to wonder well what is their overall intention and it doesn't look good especially when you know biden has said repeatedly we will defend taiwan we will defend taiwan and Um, One thing that frustrates me, and I'll turn it back over to you, is just these stupid Republicans that insist that Biden is owned by China. Well, if he's owned by China, they have an awfully loose leash on him because he's, you know, done a lot of things that really pokes them in the eye and says, all right, fuck around and find out. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you're not kidding. Mm -hmm. Gosh, domestic politics. Oh, yeah. boy. <laughs> I don't know if I want to wade into those quite yet. We just got started, but I yeah, I'll good, get good. back. I'll get back to the Republicans on this in a minute, because especially among even some libertarians, <laughs> I don't know oh, yeah. if, it, if there's some sort of influence going on, some kind of fusionist influence going on where these America firsters are somehow akin to us. And uh, because they don't want to arm Ukraine to the teeth, they're clearly, you know, yeah non-interventionist. It's yeah. like just turn the channel and listen to him talk about China. They're hysterical. Yeah. They're hysterical. Okay. Um yes, Xi Jinping. And one thing I think we should not discount is the domestic political pressures these quote-unquote dictators face.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um people like Vladimir Putin are answerable to people, and most of the people he's answerable to are much more hardline than him, based on everything I've read from actual okay. Russia watchers xi jinping the same way he has created in some ways it really reminds me of imperial germany in the late 19th century because germany when it was unified during the wars of unification during the 1860s and 1870s they were able to do something rather remarkable in europe they were able to industrialize and to and to create the sense of nationalism uh, that is necessary to, uh, you know, basically hand a bunch of your subjects guns and, you know, send them abroad to go fight your enemies for you and die by the, you know, hundreds of thousands. Right. Um. But they didn't democratize. They didn't democratize. Um. They they had uh, you know, a Kaiser, and uh, basically a, uh, you know, kind of a rubber stamp sort of sort of a parliamentary deal. Um. She is kind of in the same position as the country unified, got stronger. Uh, following the years of uh, I mean, the unification is still going on in their mind. They still don't have Taiwan. But for example, like Hong Kong and Macau, those were only returned to China, to Beijing in like the 1990s. Mm-hmm. So this is still a process of unification that's going on. And she has cultivated this very ardent sense of Chinese nationalism that now he is on the hook to deliver on, much like the Kaiser, mm-hmm. who spent the 1890s and, 1910, and 1900s, early 1910s, saber rattling, threatening everyone that if he didn't get more of what he felt was his country's due, German Germany's due, their historic, you know, right, that there was going to be trouble. Right. And really, when I look at what China is asking in terms of Taiwan, it's like, in my eyes, I mean, we already agreed to a bunch of this stuff on paper, mm-hmm. way back in the 70s. right?
1: Um,
0: and, and even as, even George W. Bush's administration, there was there were rumblings of, you know, Taiwanese independence and George W. Bush sent them a clear message saying, we do not have your back. So mm-hmm. pipe down with that. Right. But if you look today and one of the things I think you also have to look at is how much time a lot of these leaders spend in some of our own. Institutions here in the United States, just for example, Larry mm-hmm. Diamond, uh, who's one of the foremost democracy advocates in the United States, done all sorts of work he's very close with like colleagues in the Taiwanese government, in the progressive party. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. And so there's all these connections where it's like, it's just, it's deepening and deepening and it's going further and further away from what we said was going to happen, which was uh, no high level contacts with Taiwan. We've mm-hmm. had several high level delegations there in the last couple months. Yeah. No, no military presence. Mm-hmm. We've got troops on Taiwan. Like
1: right.
0: you're there's... poking them with a stick. You're yeah. poking them with a stick. You are. You're poking them, and uh, a lot of a lot of Chinese on social media, much like Russia, they allow a lot more conservative free flow of opinion than more you know progressive or liberal opinion. So if you want to say they're not being hardcore enough in their response, you're usually pretty free to let fly. And mm-hmm. after Nancy Pelosi's visit and the little demonstration of their blockade abilities, a lot of Chinese uh, on social media uh their accounts were quite livid at what they perceived to be a very weak response to a pretty blatantly disrespectful oh, move. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So she is on one hand trying to be the strong leader who doesn't get bossed around by the United States but at the same time is trying to keep a relationship going with the United oh. States when they've sent Washington has already decided fuck that. Our old right. strategy of integration mm-hmm. was wrong. Right. China is not democratizing. Mm-hmm. It's not working time for plan b if you look at what joe biden has done just in the last six months in terms of the technology war on china oh my goodness these republicans and and it's not that they're uninformed i think they're just politically opportunistic a lot of them mm-hmm. because they they vote on these bills
1: they it know what bills are going through
0: yeah they know they know what's in these bills just to, to give you one example there is a certain type of machine which you need to make uh These certain type of very very uh refined microchips Mm -hmm. uh these very high grade microchips the only company that makes them is dutch Mm -hmm. and the united states has made it very clear that even though washington dc isn't the boss of the people of holland as far as i'm aware of they basically said you're not sending any of those machines to china period right end of discussion wow and they've been going around. Uh, oh my goodness! I mean, the, te- the it really reminds me. <laughs> sorry to go historical again. No, the okay. 1930s. The U.S. government under FDR started targeting Japanese uh, access to the critical resources of the second, uh, you know, industrial economy, which was oil, mm-hmm. rubber, things like that. The the high tech economy. The oil of the high tech economy is chips.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Everything needs chips. Yeah. Every single thing needs chips, and especially when you start talking about military hardware. Mm-hmm. And so the United States is already tightening the noose around their chip supply um, and, and reshoring a bunch of our own stuff. I mean, the arms race is, is fully underway. Um, you know, one of Obama's former guys said, you know, we're in we're in Cold War 2.0 um, in case anyone isn't paying attention. Um, it's going to look a little different. There's a lot more interdependence. Um, so it's, it's hard to know exactly what's going to happen. But one thing that always stands out to me is in the event of sanctions like the russian case as the united states and europe have demonstrated they can do that together if Mm -hmm. china were to try and invade taiwan and they were to do that to china um, it would destroy china's economy overnight china is not a raw materials exporter like Mm -hmm. russia russia can withstand this kind of pressure for for quite a long for quite a long time Mm -hmm. uh if china were cut off from western capital markets and from western consumer markets and from raw materials imports, uh, which would be quite easy for the U.S. Navy and their allies to do, um, it, I mean, it would be it would be game over. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the it's it's really bad. It's really bad. I mean, everyone just seems primed for a conflict. Um, and and from she's perspective, I don't think they want a conflict, and I, I don't think they'll do anything to precipitate mm-hmm. one. My my biggest concern at this point is that. The the leaders in in Taipei are going to feel so empowered by basically the blank check that they're getting written by Washington. Now they have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, de facto uh, budget every year from from the U.S. government, just like Israel does. Mm-hmm. I mean, at what at what point are their domestic politics going to get out of control? Where in order to gain power, someone says, "Well, I'll be the one that does it. I'll mm-hmm. declare independence." Now, granted, the Progressive Party did just get dealt a rebuke. A couple of months ago,, uh, the KMT, which is the more conservative party, which is seen as being more friendly towards Beijing, did win a bunch of local elections. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much to read into that. Um, you know, there's a lot of domestic issues, uh, you know, at, at play, just like in our elections, you know, but uh, I don't know. I, I definitely think it's very dangerous, and foreign policy wasn't something that i I you know wanted to to cover, but um you know, it just it seems like such an odd, it's, it's at an odd position in people in, in our lives because it, it actually impacts our lives tremendously. Mm-hmm. At the same time, when you ask people, what's your priority? You know, rank your priorities this midterm. What are you voting on the basis of? Foreign policy is always dead last. Yep. I swear to God, look at any poll. Mm-hmm. But it's a trillion dollars a year, our budget, which is what our for- our current foreign policy, the blob, wants, requires. And right. so, you know, I hear people like uh, Bernie Sanders and AOC griping about, we don't have money for this, money for that. And then they vote for like the F-35 and expansion of NATO and stuff. it's <laughs> like, yeah. well, you know, I don't know what to say about you guys, you know, except that the left in this country is, is a joke um, from the anti-war perspective.
2: Yeah, it's, it's it's pretty sad. So one thing that I've been doing a lot of digging on has been um, Steve Bannon and Miles Guo because um, I'm sure you know Steve Bannon's kind of led the charge on a lot of this anti-China rhetoric. And it's kind of funny because um, – Miles Guo is this exiled CCP billionaire who's defrauded tons of like different investors over in China, like PAG, if you're familiar with them. I think it's Pacific Alliance oh. Group, who's a big like hedge fund um investor over there in China. He defrauded them out of, like, I think it was like $80 billion. And Miles Guo is also paying Steve Bannon for strategic consulting services. And then Miles also had this like streaming platform. He had a cryptocurrency that defrauded a whole bunch of um, average investors. There's a lot of strange stuff going on here where it really seems like Miles Guo had – you know, stolen a lot of money off of different people and different companies in China, and then was funneling the money towards a lot of these, you know, America First guys, because Miles Guo was also one of these people who broke like this whole Hunter Biden laptop stuff. So um it, it, that just kind of crossed my mind when you're mentioning mm-hmm. some of the um interlocking of individuals in Taiwan and, you know, here in our own country about, you know, some of these relations that would definitely compromise people in their position on how they view China.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's hard. And you know, I mean, uh, what was it? Uh, the American conservative, they ran a whole piece, gosh, I think it was a year ago now, but it was a cover story. So you could find it pretty easily, but it was detailing like the Bush family and all their connections with China going back to like the sixties when their dad was there. And it, it is, I, I you, one would, one would, one wish, one would, one's wish would be that such interchange could be more productive. Right. Um, you know, I just, I look at the situation in Taiwan and I just think game theoretically, if you escalate, they have to escalate. And it just, it goes from there. The, right. the optimal outcome is for no one to do anything. Taiwan's economy is very, very enmeshed with, with the mainland China. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't want they don't want to disturb that neither does beijing uh, the us has a reasonably good relationship or has had a reasonably good relationship with china i know one of the concerns of a lot of uh, america firsters is uh the decimation of american manufacturing mm-hmm. that's occurred over the last really 50 years
2: what's up everybody um, we're going to take a quick break and tell you about the show's sponsors um we are brought to you by element t electrolytes I've been using this stuff for years, and what I've honestly found is that if I didn't have electrolytes before some kind of cardio, and sometimes even before workouts, that my workout performance, or definitely cardio performance, would suffer greatly. Sodium is responsible for every single movement, pretty much, in your entire body. And let's say you drink a lot of caffeine, (laughs) like I like to do, then um, maybe it is a good idea, like I do every single morning, um, put some LMNT chocolate electrolytes um, there in your coffee to get a little bit more sodium, potassium, and uh, magnesium in your coffee. So that way, whatever diuretic effect you get from the caffeine is pretty much diluted by the fact that you put chocolate salt in it. Um, also, it tastes really, really good. Get some uh, chocolate cream or hazelnut creamer, or even coconut uh, mix that all up it tastes really really good so uh yeah make sure you drop by go to drink element.com slash in liberty and health and uh pick you up some electrolytes today all right guys thanks
0: and look yes granted some of the more recent waves of that were caused by china particularly right after its accession to the wto from 2001 to 2010 you know, you had that nasty recession in there that really hurt too, yes. Over that period of time, I think I think total, something like 6 million jobs. Okay, we, we've lost more than that to our partners in other free trade deals. We've lost more, we've lost loads more than that to just automation alone. Right. So I, I think if we want to have a domestic manufacturing base, I, I think that's fine. But I think we should recognize that it's it's just a matter of policies. Like, for example, the French and Germans, even though they're within the EU, they, they're really protective of their internal markets as well. But you don't hear them complaining about, you know, someone stole all the jobs and stuff and we're doing it. No, it's just, if it's, a ma- if it's a matter of domestic policy, then just make those choices because it was a deliberate choice in the 1970s. There's a really good book called um, From Factories to Finance. Um, and it was written by Judith Stein. it's a fabulous book. It's rather dense, it's actually an academic book, but it goes into great detail how U.S. policymakers in the 1970s, as the Bretton Woods system started to fall apart and U.S. manufacturing hegemony started to be eroded by West Germany and Japan, the decision was made to simply make the United States the place where all of that surplus manufacturing got dumped Mm -hmm. in exchange for, you know, their savings being lent here to, you know, keep up the standard of living and stuff. And like, theoretically, this is all fine, Mm -hmm. but some communities did get very seriously damaged because, you know, places like, you know, Youngstown or something where there was really only one, one source of employment there. Like, you know, that transition was handled horribly and predictably because most of the people who make these decisions are unelected, frankly. Um, you know, they're policy wonks. You know, they went to a, you know, elite Eastern University school and they're just looking at it and saying, how can we maximize our power projection capabilities? Well, if we shed 2 million manufacturing jobs, we can have 20 bases surrounding China. It's like, <laughs> oh, great. That's a great trade. You know, no vote necessary. It gets shoved into some huge bill and that's the end of it. So, as, a, as the american people I, I feel like they need to take a little more responsibility because mm-hmm. it's not like we woke up one day and the jobs were all gone they started leaving in the 1970s mm-hmm. um and you know now it's all china's fault that we don't have any domestic manufacturing <laughs>
2: go figure like, right so i remember listening to a talk from the hill and you know the hill is not like the most yeah. dovish um think tank out there but uh they had actually said that um I believe we only got three percent of our overall steel from China. And that was one of the main focuses of Trump's tariffs, which Biden has continued and actually ramped up. Mm-hmm. And then um, there were plenty of other reports that basically said, okay, so American consumers paid for 94% of these tariffs, China paid for six percent. Mm-hmm. Um, so like this economic trade war is just a failure on all fronts. Now, somebody had once said to me when I called this out on Twitter, they said that um some larger banks collapsed in china but my question then was okay is this correlation or is this causation because you're everybody knows china's economy is a mess so did this you know did these tariffs cause the banks to collapse or they're already going to collapse i i don't know and i never got a straight answer either
0: those are all great points let me see if i can take them here in order uh first thing yes okay so Globally and nationally, we would all be much poorer without globalization. Mm -hmm. Much of the low inflation that we experienced during yours and my childhoods—the 1990s, early Mm -hmm. 2000s—that was a result of lower and lower labor costs from lower and lower, like China and a higher standard of living. And a higher standard of living was the result because goods got cheaper. Yes, your dollars depreciated, but look what they could buy now. You live like someone couldn't even imagine 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, so if you decide that you want to shelter your market, protect it, protectionism, um, that's just the general for like tariffs, quotas, all those different subsidies, you you are going to have slower economic growth. You're going to have higher prices and you are going to have... Uh, depending on how you, because then you need a competition policy uh, because you're handing so much power to domestic uh, producers and manufacturers who are now not facing any foreign competition. You give them so much pricing power, you almost have to have a competition policy now. But if you have a competition policy now, you're adding even another layer to Washington DC, which the problem I have with protectionism is like steel, for example. It's so little of our GDP. It's so little of our employment, Mm -hmm. but it's politically connected enough that it can get uh, the American people to pay all this extra money to them. Right. China didn't pay it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We China was worse off and we were worse off. I don't think those tariffs had anything to do with the financial collapses that have happened in China. Okay. That, like our collapse in 2007, 2008, mm-hmm. is very tied into the property market, mm-hmm. which okay. we could talk about because that's kind of been a slow rolling debacle. And the reason that it, it hasn't been headline breaking news is that when these collapses started, instead of in, in, okay, I'll take people back to 2007, 2008 for a minute. While there was a precedent for the Federal Reserve stepping in behind closed doors and brokering deals and sweetening them up, the the, the Federal Reserve actually stepping in and bailing out the entire industry, that, that, that was not a Rubicon that had ever been crossed. And during the great depression, of course, the, the whole banking system had, had been destroyed. And so there was kind of a, a, a series of months of uncertainty before eventually Geithner and company won out and got the bailout that they, that they wanted. Mm-hmm. But that uncertainty was enough to just completely freeze the system. It was, it was a complete liquidity freeze. People weren't all able to roll over positions. And what was happening was you had all of these mortgages and subprime mortgages in particular, uh, done by these shadow banks that have been packaged up and lent out, uh, that's financial innovation for you. And But you had to finance these positions uh, with credit. And most of the credit came from other banks. Mm-hmm. And so when when it became unclear whether or not anything was safe, everyone stopped lending to everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what happened. Well, in China, they don't have that that kind of separation going on there. So as soon as the CCP, which is embedded in a lot of these banks and whatnot, the ones that aren't directly state-owned anyway, as soon as they found out what was happening, they just opened up the taps and just started letting the money f- flow in there. Mm-hmm. Um, they had the space. They had the the space to take a little extra inflation. They're a they're developing... They're a developing economy still, so their growth rate regularly still hits five, six, seven percent. So for so for them to take three, four, five percent inflation is much more tolerable over uh, a series of years than in the United States, where you're right. looking at three percent a year as a highly matured economy. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, obviously China, it, there's a there's a ton of bad loans. There's something like seven trillion dollars worth of totally non-performing loans. They have whole cities of just empty buildings and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Great, the Belt and Road Initiative. This is something that America firsters and, and even liberal internationals freak out a lot about. Okay, I'm glad Belt- you're touching on this
2: because I, yeah, I, I Belt- really wanted to okay. look, talk more about this. Yeah. Okay, so the Belt and
0: Road Initiative. It is sold to us as uh, you know citizens of America as this devious plot by China to enslave the developed world and take control of it. What it really looks like operationally is China has really unproductive, old-style, state-directed industries that just churn out things like steel and cement with absolutely zero concern for things like market demand. Mm, for example, okay, here in the United States, the board sits down and they go, might be a recession coming up. We should cut production to keep price up. In China, right. that's not what it's about. It's about keeping these people at work and putting money in their hands so they're not standing around the unemployment line thinking about how uh, rotten it is that the government isn't better at you know making their lives better. Okay, so, okay. so basically, they go to these other countries like Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and they say, hey, we'll lend you $50 billion, but here's the thing. You have to buy all, all the stuff from us. Mm. And they say, oh, okay, that sounds great. And so China, boom, killed two birds with one stone, right? Right. Except that a lot of these loans are now non-performing. Turns out, giving shitloads of money to places like Sri Lanka and Pakistan and Venezuela, uh, not a great investment. Geez, I wonder why more people weren't doing it. Uh, Unfortunately, (laughs) rather than just chilling out and just watching China overextend itself and waste all its money and destroy itself, our government has decided the best thing to do is run to start throwing money at these places too. So that's what they're doing.
2: That's build back better world. Which what a lame ass name,
0: Jesus Christ. So, so
2: it's it's kind of funny because um I heard somebody use the expression once that um we go around the world with bombs and China goes around with a briefcase and you know we're supposed to see who's going to be better off but it seems like neither one of these are like really winning solutions. So the one thing that kind of clicked for me, I'm a uh, auto mechanic by trade, and um it would kind of be like Ford would be looking at what they sell the most. I work for Buick GMC Cadillac, but Ford was just the one that uh, came to mind first. So everybody knows that Ford F-150s sell like hotcakes, right? So that would be like Ford, the executive sitting up top saying, well, we're selling a lot of trucks. So why don't we turn up the spigots and make a lot of focuses right now as well? <laughs> Even though nobody wants cars anymore, everyone wants crossovers and trucks, let's just mm-hmm. make a whole bunch of focuses so that way we can get them out there. And then let's see if we can who we can offload these on and typically, it seems like they're offloading them on countries that really don't have that great of economies, especially like somewhere like Venezuela, which has been under brutal sanctions by the U.S., basic embargo. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, and, and the thing is, is one of the things that I, I spent some time studying was was the, the development of, of capitalism in Europe. And one of the things that really struck me was what a really socially disruptive an occasionally exceedingly violent process it was. Mm. And so when you talk about decommissioning, uh, you know, industries that are non-performing, you talk about moving lots of people around at once, like this is going to be highly socially, uh, you know, fractious. And, uh, you know, if you're a a democratic country and, you know, the plan doesn't go well, well, there's an election in two years, you know, well, you try, you know. In China, if that doesn't go well, there might be a revolution, and people might wind up getting right. shot, as yeah. tends to happen. <laughs> so, she actually came to power saying that he was going to continue to try and liberalize China's economy. Mm-hmm. Um, but what he found was that it was it was highly disruptive. It was quite dangerous to uh, central control. Mm-hmm. Um, capitalism is all about the diffusion of power throughout the system. Right. But creating, you know autonomous centers of power if you are uh, a would-be or authoritarian Mm -hmm. um that that's that's totally unacceptable it's highly dangerous um that's one of the reasons that the soviet union wound up collapsing was because as it attempted to open up to reform its economy um it lost control of the the various uh interests Mm -hmm. uh who essentially started to organize for themselves and the center was just not strong enough to hold it together and so, for example, China's crackdown on its own technology sector. Shanghai has historically wanted to look outward. It's not that interested in what's going on in Western China. Deserts, mountains, you know, not interested. What's going on out in Japan, the United States, you know, the written South Korea. Um, they have a lot more relations with them. And uh, so those are also the the, the places that, that spent, you know, 100 or a hundred or so years under under Western occupation, starting in the 1840s following the first opium wars, which if people are interested in studying U.S.-China relations for themselves, uh, I would recommend just starting in the 1840s with the first opium war.
1: Mm, Okay. Uh, Because
0: America America wound up being involved, the first U.S. troops set foot in China in the 1850s.
1: Okay. As part of the
0: Imperial Occupation
2: Force. Okay. Yeah, I actually didn't know that. Um, So the other thing that I've heard is that... um, Uh, These two things kind of tie together is that um, you have China, which is actually like their population is largely diabetic. And it's not because of overeating like we have here in the U.S. It's because of malnutrition. And then you also have a lot of the citizenry basically writing like cultural manifestos. So if you have a hungry, malnourished population who's writing cultural manifestos, um, it doesn't seem to me like – they're exactly ready to go storm the beaches of California <laughs> for their own country. And I could be wrong, but this is something that you hear a lot of American firsters talk about. Like even Joe Kent, Blake Masters have said stuff like this. And like it's not like you have to dig very far to find what I'm talking about here, but um it, it just sounds silly on its face. You're gonna have a bunch of 40-year-old malnourished diabetics storming, you know, south or whatever beach is out there in California to take over america like just thinking about that on its face is just ridiculous to me so um i'm not sure if you have anything to add there or what your thoughts are surrounding that tom cotton tom Mm. cotton one of my (laughs) least favorite
0: senators ever uh gave a speech uh i think it was last september now where he basically said you know if if we turn our backs on ukraine and taiwan you know we might as well take the flag down over the virginia naval yards and stuff and it's like are you nuts no invasion force could ever invade the united states no one could ever cross the oceans yeah um most of the stuff that you see where you, where people say okay granted granted we're not vulnerable to conventional warfare but what about uh space warfare or uh you know cyber warfare and it's like okay so can, can we finally shelf the million abrams we have and like you know stop <laughs> building so many f-35s yeah. then maybe Mm-hmm. um but no the whole point is to is to have places to put them and people to point them at and so uh you know china i mean frankly china didn't do itself a lot of favors i i know i i i don't like to add to the you know anti-china sentiment mm-hmm. which is why i don't i don't ever really engage in it. but just just so listeners are aware if they're not like um china china did rub people the wrong way they have they had existing territorial disputes with several of their neighbors mm-hmm. um a lot of them do uh korea japan the philippines vietnam malaysia like it's it's well known in the region and like no one is super bellicose about it um everyone was kind of just minding their own business uh for example the philippines the quote unquote disputed waters they had um, were being patrolled by like a rusted out old tugboat basically <laughs> um and the chinese started to behave Pretty aggressively in in the south china and east china sea which they had historically dominated granted Mm -hmm. um but i I just feel like if if your goal was to turn the region against you uh you you did a good job but it wasn't the the goal was to be assertive but that didn't work uh instead it prompted a very sharp response from pretty much everyone in the region and i'm not going to generalize because each one of these countries south korea for example japan india Vietnam, Australia, the, these countries all have their own slightly different reasons for wanting to balance against China
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the one thing they all have in common is they'd like the United States to be in the area. Mm-hmm. Now they unlike the Europeans, the Europeans completely lost control of the situation. Olaf Scholz actually wrote a piece in foreign affairs this week basically saying, "Look, Germany needs to lead Europe on an independent foreign policy." Because He's not going to say it. He can't say it. But a lot of the people in his own country are saying it. NATO started this war. <laughs> Shocking. Now, NATO and the divide is is really sharp. And in some countries like Italy, I mean, it's well over half the, pe- half the population surveyed say, like, obviously, NATO expansion started this war. It's only in the United States that it's remotely controversial to say that. But <laughs> Olaf Scholz has basically said, look, going forward, we need to be more independent because our interests were not your interests. We got all our oil and natural gas from Russia. You didn't. We should have thought about that, you know, um, countries in, in Southeast Asia have been much more reticent about just letting America lead them straight towards the slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, but because, uh, you know, but they all have an interest in having America there in some capacity to help them balance, um, because a lot of them have existing disputes, too. And, and so basically the idea is that the United States will act as some kind of coordinator. That was until Joe Biden came along. Then Joe Biden came along and started saying, well we're just going to intervene directly, obviously. That's always been the policy, you know, and which was, you know, news to those of us who paid attention. But uh no, I think the America Firsters, uh man, the Republicans generally, they can't help themselves. They just can't help themselves. Um I think the Cold War, the first Cold War started in part, maybe in large part, because the Republicans had absolutely nothing with which to beat Harry Truman with. The New Deal coalition was still perfectly intact. They had nothing to beat him with, so they just said, "You know, he's soft on communism." What? Soft on communism?
1: Yeah.
0: And this a guy that was just fighting them and bombing them and you know all that stuff? No, you know. So the whole Red Scare, right? Which was basically a reaction, you know, purging the State Department of like all our China experts and stuff. (laughs) Like, we're—I mean, it's—it's bad, and it looks like it looks like rank political opportunism. Um, especially now because they they have a real hand in crafting policy now. Um, I mean, it's it's a pretty much evenly divided chamber a lot of the time. So mm-hmm. these bills have to move with bipartisan agreement. Um, things like the Chips Act mm-hmm. uh, that passed this last year, the Republicans were all on board with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, so I just it's tough because they're are in some in in a lot of ways, you know, uh, you, there are certain things about the America Firsters that definitely are are compatible with with Mm -hmm. some of the positions that libertarians and and non-interventionists have. But certainly when it comes to China, it's it's just all wrong, and
2: they can't see
1: it. And uh,
2: so... Well, and that seems to be like the big thing. Um, I know you're friends with Pat McFarlane, as am I, and we talk almost every single day. And normally what, uh, you know, I don't want to say all the conversation, but sometimes the conversation ends up centering around, I'm um, just sending quote tweets of other, you know, Republicans just hawking it up on China or, you know, the Uyghur stuff and like just a lot of the unfounded claims. So one thing that kind of did surprise me about some of these America Firsters is this whole panic about TikTok. And like I did a Google search because I'm like, this is just sounds like so silly on its face that tiktok is here um in you know they're calling it digital fentanyl now <laughs> go figure because of course fentanyl comes from china which they stopped they actually made it illegal to make that over in china in 2019 but um a- anyways <laughs> i thought all the republicans were going to vote for this omnibus bill because it came with banning tiktok well if you do some digging you'll find all the tiktok information is stored on u.s servers by a company called oracle and when there were, like, breaches of security where um, the people who work for ByteDance over in China um, were accessing information that they weren't supposed to access, they were fired, like, immediately. So, to me, this says that, like, this is such just, like, a panic over – it's like a nothing burger. And it literally is, kind of like you were saying there earlier, it, it's another red scare, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's, for, it's for domestic consumption. Mm-hmm. Think about the Iran
0: deal, right? Joe Biden is Obama's VP. He's helping him steer this thing to the conclusion. And he criticized Donald Trump publicly when he pulled Mm -hmm. out of it. And when he got into office, the first, one of the first things he should have done was been like Donald Trump. I thought he was an idiot. We're getting back in this deal right Right. away. Instead, internal memos leaks. He was afraid of the political blowback that Mm -hmm. he would catch from Republicans for looking, you know, quote unquote weak on Iran, which like, whatever like come on yeah. show some backbone man you don't face an election for four years like yeah go You'll argue okay. your point go argue your point it, it's mm-hmm. it felt so much like hillary clinton like they're just so spineless like they have no real convictions like hillary clinton helped negotiate the tpp and donald trump got up there and said that's a dumb uh thing i'm not sure what it is but i don't like it and instead of just defending it being like you know i don't think donald is a very smart guy and uh, here's why we should do it uh and she was like she just dropped it just mm-hmm. dropped it no convictions at all. Mm-hmm. Um so uh, again, yeah, uh, you, you have to you have to look at the money, too. I mean, the Ukraine and Taiwan lobbies spend so much money in Washington and are so active. And there are no no real guardrails against this, ok. So I uh, have these heard a foreign lot about governments actually, yeah, these foreign governments okay. can just pay these think tanks mm-hmm. and then they hire these people to write these papers about how they're so critical to our national interest. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's like, are you guys kidding me? And there's no disclaimer at all. When they come on the television and they tell you, you know, I'm an expert at the American Enterprise Institute brought to you by Saudi Arabia. You know, <laughs> like there should be a there should be a disclaimer here. You know, they should have to wear the patches on their jackets. Like who's paying your salary here? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not I, <laughs> uh, several months back. Uh, I started to think like Politico's articles are getting really weird. And I looked, and I found that, like, they had started to be sponsored by, like, Lockheed Martin. Like, wait
2: a minute. Of, of course there'
0: there's did. The article that did it for me was one about how the U.S. is falling behind in the uh, Asia-Pacific arms race against China. Oh. And I was like, what the fuck is this?
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I don't know. It's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. The yeah. money is everywhere. And uh, there's just no incentive for the average politician who is a spineless you know, power-seeking nut job, that Mm -hmm. is the average politician, Uh, they look around and they say, okay, if I oppose these policies, I'm going to lose manufacturing jobs in my district Mm -hmm. because companies like L3 Harris and Lockheed and Raytheon, they spread these jobs. Boeing, they spread these parts jobs all around the country. They nestle them in different congressional districts. You know, you know you're going to get primaried on it. Like, Mm -hmm you know they lost 113 manufacturing jobs you know it's like oh man for what because you don't want them bombing yemen they're gonna be like where the hell's yemen what's a yemen
2: (laughs) yeah for real so they don't give a fuck no no not at all and you know you better vote for that appropriation is um if you want to get elected right right um who is it a raytheon that's right um raytheon even has its tentacles into some of the general motors like training so um for me, I take manufacturer-specific training for General Motors, and Raytheon's one who's actually in charge of all, like, the classes and everything like that. So th- that's really interesting when you kind of think about where all these arms manufacturers are kind of seeped into and how they have such a pull on people and, you know, different sectors. Especially
0: on foreign policy, because, again, it's it's not something that uh, – it's a coordination problem uh because they can focus their resources their immense resources in a very concentrated fashion on particular issues to move the needle mm-hmm. whereas it's very hard for you and I and maybe the you know 10,000 other people who care about this issue to coordinate a response to get a lobbyist in Washington you know to finance this thing um because they have no shortage of it it's really it's an incredible system what they've got going on these companies get the government to tax us to take our money to give to them the arms manufacturers to then give in part back to the politicians to then give to them some more it's just, it, and to tax more it's it's just really incredible mm-hmm. and uh, of course everything's got a million updates and that old stuff that's no good they just built a bunch of frigates that were just going to be out of sight they were going to be great they are going to be these shallow water patrol boats China wasn't going to be able yeah. to touch them They've been in service two years, the Navy's scrapping the whole bunch of them said, eh, they don't really work that
2: good. I am stoked to tell you guys about the show's new sponsor. I am now working with MTS Nutrition, which is a brand that I've believed in for a very long time and they run awesome cells and they have awesome products. So um, I wanna tell you about their amazing protein powder, which you're gonna ask me how many pounds I have of the protein powder and the answer is all of them. So here I got red velvet cake, 25 grams of protein, and they have the amino acids and everything on there, 59 servings, peanut butter fluff, uh, fluff fluffernutter, 26 grams of protein, and then also the chocolate chip cookie, which literally has real pieces of chocolate chip cookie in there. So 27 grams of protein, 180. As I've talked about on the show, getting your protein in is very, very important, so make sure you hit that link below and purchase your protein powder through MTS Nutrition. Boom! Uh, these things program. were
0: billions of, these things were billions of dollars piece. they built like 12 of them don't worry about it <laughs> come on you know so yeah i mean who was i don't know I, I at some point you you feel like these trillion dollar annual deficits have to something has to happen um you know so
2: yeah you would think something would have to break and it almost seems like it it kind of is um something I wanted to pivot back to China on and it just slipped my mind. I don't remember what it was. But yeah, you would think you can't, you know, for you know a continuous amount of time just continue to run multi-trillion dollar debts and then sign these omnibus bill after omnibus bill after omnibus bill and see no consequences from it. Um okay so actually you know what this might be a decent pivot for um, you because I know you also study kind of like geopolitical markets and kind of economies all over the world as well. Um, what do you think of this idea of the US being the cleanest, dirty shirt in the hamper? Because that's typically what we hear is that we're going to maintain dominance because once again, we're the cleanest, dirty shirt in the hamper. Of potential global
1: hegemons?
0: Mm. Um, well, I don't think, number one, I don't think there is an alternate global hegemon. Okay. I think it's either the United States or like some sort of Block system or multi ideally, you'd have a multipolar system, and there is some literature that suggests that multipolar systems are highly unstable and prone to war. Whatever, Uh, I mean, I feel like at some point it's it's decision making time. I mean, war is bad, war is not good for anything except the people in power who want power. Uh, It's not good for economies, societies, anything. Um, when you look at the United States's record, uh, it depends where you lived, right? Mm -hmm. If you lived in Western Europe, you probably didn't mind this too much the last 50, 60 years, right? Mm-hmm. If you lived in Vietnam, you probably minded it a great deal. If you <laughs> lived in, uh, you know, Nicaragua or Chile, you probably minded it a great deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you were living in the, uh, in one of the, the Sunni Persian Gulf countries, I don't know, you're probably pretty cool with it still. Like, I don't think the Saudis wanted to break with the United States. I think they started to get very freaked out by the emphasis they were placing on human rights and stuff. And I think they just realized it was only a matter of time before they got caught up in this as well. And so they, Mm -hmm. they started to, to try and pivot away, but certainly the, the agreement they had going on, which was, you just sell us a ton of oil. We'll make sure that nobody messes with you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they're basically their scheme is they just pay their very small populations. If you look up per capita GDP, all those Persian Gulf countries are going to be like number one, number two, number three, number four, because they have very small populations and tons and tons of oil wealth. Uh, And basically the rulers just pay the people to like sit at home in the air conditioning, making babies. You know, you've seen the cities they have. They're just glorious cities full of shopping malls, entertainment. And then they just import migrant labor. Um, That's one of the things the world cup recently, one of the things that was kind of behind the scenes was all the people who died making the world cup facilities all the imported labor yeah, that's basically what they do so they didn't want it they didn't want it to change the reason that china couldn't play the global role is because none of its neighbors would be comfortable having china take charge of security in its region and they're all developed enough to do something about it when the united states took possession of the western hemisphere and asserted its regional hegemony there which was a critical step to it becoming a potential global hegemon a vital step um there, there was just no other strong state in its hemisphere. I, I mean, at all. Um, Great Britain was hanging around in Canada, but by like 1860, 1870, the internal documents, the British had already like completely discarded all contingency plans for a war with the United States. It was, if the Americans push on an issue, we're just going to have to concede. That's actually why the shoreline of Alaska that trails down looks like the way it does. If you ever looked at a map of Alaska, I
1: think yeah. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, that was to to prevent uh, easy British access to the Yukon there and all the gold uh, there. Yeah. Mm. Teddy Roosevelt was basically like, we're having it drawn this way or we'll have it by force of arms. Mm-hmm. And the British were like, yeah, that sounds unreasonable. We're not going to go to war over that. <laughs> right.
1: Okay. So, we need uh, to take a
0: page out of their book. Mm-hmm. We need to take a page out of the British playbook because okay. that's the only real successful instance where we've had of like one global hegemon, the British, handed off power peacefully to another global hegemon. And what we need now is a train is a peaceful establishment of what I think needs to be a multipolar world because Russia is no longer going to be allowed or want anything to do with the the American led global order. That's right. all done so it's wrecked and Russia's too big. So something new needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um and it it's a question of what what, what China's going to do? China wants to be independent. India India wants to be its own, you know, its own uh i don't want to use the word uh master but like you know it wants to be autonomous uh you know it wants the perks of dealing with russia it wants the perks of doing business with china with america Mm -hmm. you know they're not going along with these sanctions they're still buying russian oil
2: you know and they're a nominal ally against china so you know so, yeah I mean India had even uh border disputes with China like there were people dying worse. over yeah I know yeah. that was a uh, that was a pretty big deal. so um I, I think one other thing that you've wrote on which we can kind of pivot now towards uh domestic politics um didn't you write an article on Ron DeSantis? yeah, yeah okay so Ron DeSantis is kind of this new up-and-coming star in the republican party and even amongst libertarians and let me get the standard caveat out of the way yes he was great on covid and my wife and i got married in florida um just two months ago um we went out of florida plenty of times last year and i'll go to florida plenty of more times because i absolutely love everything about florida that being said If you look at Ron DeSantis' voting history, you're going to be hard-pressed to find where he would disagree with someone like George Bush. And yes, he voted against regime change in Syria in 2013. Yes, that's a good thing. But as soon as Trump got in, he was all about him bombing there, and he's one of the worst Iran hawks. He's not good on China either. Uh, he's terrible on China, and then he's not good on Russia either because he, he – I, if I remember correctly, he said something about um, a, a certain strategy regarding Ukraine. But um, I can't remember his exact remarks off the top of my head, but like Iran and China, which are like kind of the two pet peeves um, you know, of the Republicans – He's horrible on them, and he's definitely shaping up to be probably the next president because his um just his charisma, the way he acted throughout COVID, and his ability to hire and fire people. There's something admirable about him, but at the same time, keep him in Florida because he's a fucking neocon through and through.
0: You're spot on. You're spot on. Uh, <laughs> Thank yeah. You. No, I, and I will. I will add this. I will add this. Okay. So when you look at his background, why would you expect him to be some other way? Right. He went to Yale and Harvard mm-hmm. and served in the military as an officer. Mm-hmm. Well, what kind of perspective do you expect in
2: Fallujah. Him to have? Fallujah. Fallujah and Guantanamo Bay.
0: This, this guy is exactly what the <laughs> Northeastern establishment produces. That mm-hmm. is his policy mindset. You listed off a bunch of places he's terrible on, you can add Latin America generally to it. It would yes, be like going back yeah, to the actually. Reagan years. Mm-hmm. He's ready to go at it in South America. Yeah. He views the election of left-wing governments in South America as a threat to, to U.S. national security. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at who he's connected to: John Bolton, Adelson before he died. I mean, you can look up his speech that he gave at the uh, the Hudson Institute, which the oh. Hudson Institute. If the yeah, major you're hawks. okay. Yes, major hawks. I mean, it's it is the project mm-hmm. for a new American century with a <laughs> a name that is a little more. Uh, it disguises it. It's something like. Very. The Hudson Institute for a Liberal International Order for the 21st Century. Some shit like that, right? Yeah. Um, same thing. It's the same thing. It's actually some of the same people. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ron DeSantis, he fits in right right well with those guys. Yes, he did an admirable job during COVID. Yes, I go to Florida. Yes, I have friends who live in Florida. I'm going to go to Florida twice in the next like five months. Mm-hmm. That being, he's a, you know, he's an efficient governor, like you said. That's what you want out of an executive. An executive is not there to debate policy. That is what legislators are for. That is one of the reasons Barack Obama was an awful, awful president who got jack shit done. And what he did get done was awful mm-hmm. because he was just this deliberative guy who'd just sit there and let people talk, 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 talk. Nothing would ever get decided. Mm-hmm. And what eventually got cobbled together was basically just a little bit of everybody's ideas. Right. You need someone who's just going to listen to the ideas and say, great, this is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And That that is, a Ron, that is Ron DeSantis. Um, he is a strong he is a strong candidate, obviously. Um, I I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you, I actually think Brian Kemp would be a stronger candidate.
1: Okay. You because understand. Ron
0: DeSantis, because Ron DeSantis um has had to compete with a Florida Democratic Party that is in complete shambles and has been for a long time. Mm. Um, I think every dollar the Democrats throw at Florida is just a complete waste. Um, by, by contrast, Brian Kemp has defeated twice now one of the most fearsome Democratic machines in the country, put together by Stacey Abrams in Georgia. I mean, he's winning a real swing state
1: Uh, and beating her good.
0: So, yeah, Ron DeSantis, you know, definitely presidential material. You know, when I look at it as like, I look at it as, how do you win Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Georgia? I don't give a shit about the rest of the states. We already know where they're going. Right. So for me, it doesn't matter if you run Ron DeSantis. Or uh, anybody else, if he's got an R next to his name, he's getting the votes in in Alabama. Irrelevant. Yeah. So, and it doesn't matter how many votes you win by. It doesn't matter if some people stay home because he's not their guy. Mm-hmm. You know, those electoral votes are going anyway. So, I don't know. He's definitely dangerous, uh, Ron DeSantis, because I think he could be someone, you know, who could really do a lot of damage. Uh, you talked about Iran. Now the nuclear deal is real dead. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Wall Street Journal has been reporting for the last year that the Israelis have just been on a murderous spree, uh, just oh, killing yeah. Iranians left and right all over the Middle East, bombing Syria and, as well, uh, bombing Syria as well just recently. But apparently, the U.S. Uh, essentially knew what was going on, may have even shared intelligence with them, mm-hmm. certainly gave it the tacit approval. And this is all for the Wall Street Journal, so this is all public I- public information now. So I think it's quite quite possible that, that there's even more to that. Of course, now there's a lot of instability just to kind of shift back towards kind of Eurasia for a second, mm-hmm. um, because Russia has been so preoccupied with Ukraine. There's been a lot of flare up in that region there, Azerbaijan, uh, which there, there's an Azerbaijani population in Iran. Iran is very multi-ethnic. Um, so, you you know, you'd be looking for the CIA to be stirring up trouble there possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's tough out there. It's tough out there. I I really don't feel, feel well about it. Um because I just, I view it all as so unnecessary, so unnecessary. Like the Chinese Communist Party could not have conquered its neighbors. I don't think they ever would have tried militarily to invade Taiwan because it's such a high risk play. It's such a high risk play. Um, and it's all or nothing, really. Um, I think they were just fine with the status quo. Um, and and now we're going to, I mean, I think now it's now it's just inevitable because there's no trust. There's no trust between beijing and washington now um i mean the official policy documents spell it right out for you um i, I don't care what label you want to put on it. great power competition um uh what is it called um competitive coexistence um they have all these different euphemisms for it but it's basically andy blinken said it right out he said what we're trying to do is shape china's surrounding environment." In a way that will make it less powerful than it might otherwise be. And it's like, well, that sounds friendly. <laughs> that yeah, sounds indeed. well inten. That sounds well intentioned. That's like telling your neighbor you're going to surround his house with fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just. And then you know, Beijing has to respond. Like you do, you have to respond. Right. Um, there are a lot of domestic internal party pressures too. I mean, you just. Eh. And and I just I don't know what to say. I mean, I don't want to sound fatalistic that that this is going to happen. But when I look at what happened in Eastern Europe, and I wrote about this in particular, I started churning out articles in the months leading up to the invasion, where I basically said, "Look, this is it. It's now or never. Like we, you got to cut a deal with Putin if he if he asks." And the Europeans wanted to do a deal with him. They had done a deal with him, and it was Minsk too. And it was the United States support for the ultra-nationalists, some of them, Azov Battalion guys, refusing to make them bow to Zelensky, who was elected on a peace platform to unify the country, to hold the elections, to give those regions the autonomy, the say over foreign affairs that they wanted. And the U.S. said, you don't have to deal with this guy at all. In fact, here's a bunch of weapons. Right. And that was it. Uh, You know, Putin gives his big speech about how, you know, Ukraine really, you know, is very close historical ties to Russia, you know, and, and whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's full of half truths and some of it's true, some of it's not, whatever. It's propaganda, propaganda, yeah. but it was meant as a message. Mm-hmm. And what did the U.S. do in response? They invited Zelensky to Washington a couple months later to yeah. say, dude, don't worry, NATO, that's still totally on the cards for
2: you. Don't we, worry. We still have a blank check waiting for you, essentially. And, exactly. And yeah. It, it's, it's so funny that, um, There's this weird dichotomy of, like, we're supposed to believe that Putin is going to invade the world, but we're not supposed to believe anything about his nukes, but he also can't seem to conquer Ukraine, who don't get me wrong, they're getting aid from all over the world, but he can't conquer a country that's one-sixteenth the size of the U.S., and we're supposed to believe that he's going to go out into Europe? Like, why, why didn't he attack, like, Poland or... Um, I don't know some of the other surrounding countries on his border. If he's going to take over the world, why is he just attacking Ukraine? Could it possibly be because there's a lot of ethnic Russians, and that's something that means a lot to you know him and his people? It's probably it. And if you know, and it seems like both sides of this conflict, obviously Russia more so than Ukraine, um, that they're willing to negotiate if you know people will just pull back a little bit and if the u.s will quit just writing them a blank check like putin from what i understand the whole his whole state department have pretty much said the entire time like look we'll negotiate you guys just have to come to the table but you know once again then the weapons manufacturers don't get paid if uh, there's no boogeyman well
0: one thing about this too is again Zelensky is an elected politician um, they are suppressing democracy right now in the country, uh, you know, under the pretext of war, which, you know, we held elections under the Civil War. So just saying it is possible to do it. We've always held elections. So it is possible. Anyway, Zelensky is under a ton of pressure. If Zelensky were to come to the table saying, All right, I'll make some territorial teritor- concessions to you, he would be dead or out of office immediately. Mm. Because the real people pulling the strings there are the ones who have the ties. To the u.s security apparatus who've been getting the weapons all this time who've been getting the training all this time they're the ones washington wants washington wants this the blob mm-hmm. wants this they want ukraine as a frontline state fighting back the russians um and as a bonus they got the nordic countries you know who were totally freaked out by this you know war that was visibly coming from a mile away um you know uh obviously there are a lot of ethnic russians in other regions, mm-hmm. obviously, Lithuania, Latvia. Look, Putin has has never threatened those countries. Um, it is it is different. The United States never recognized the Soviet possession of of those of those uh, of those states. Um, so it's it's a different relationship. And when the Big Bang expansion happened, Putin really didn't raise any fuss about the Baltic countries going in, mm-hmm. even though in the nineteen nineties. That had been among, uh, you know, Russian hardliners like, oh, that, that would just be outrageous. And they did it. And Putin was kind of like, OK. And then came the, the 2006 summit where they started talking about Georgia and Ukraine.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, if you can kind of picture the map that we're talking about here,
1: yeah.
0: all of a sudden we're talking about cutting off Russia's access to the Black Sea and to the Mediterranean now. That's their only warm water port. That's their only year round port. Right. That's a national security issue. Right. And they were very, 2007 Munich Security Conference, the very next year, Putin gave a speech. And it is unlike any speech you've ever heard delivered in that form. That is a place for niceties and, you know, know, just kind of general things. He just lets loose with this blistering attack on NATO expansion. And they persisted. And the very next year, Russia found a pretext to invade Georgia yes the georgians did provoke it yes the russians tried to get them to do it but suffice it to say but to this day to this day olaf schultz will say that georgia's future is with europe that ukraine's future is with europe like this is literally really really cutting russia back i mean this is as small as russia has been since the founding of the united states basically mm-hmm. This is a very small Russia. There are a lot of Russians, family members, people who all of a sudden live in a right. foreign country. Yeah. So it's, it's very complicated. And it should have been handled with, with tact and with patience and with non-militarized diplomacy. Right. If there had to be some kind of massive European alliance structure that was military in nature, it should have, as Gorbachev always insisted, be a new pan-European security architecture that was inclusive of Russia. Mm -hmm. If there was ever a time to do it, it was when the Soviet Union disintegrated and Russia was incredibly weak and so was Eastern Europe and Western Europe was very strong. And instead, that's not what happened. Instead, Bruce Jackson, it's a fairly well-known story now, but basically a bunch of the arms manufacturers got together, started this organization, the committee to expand NATO, spent a bunch of money, you know, and turned it into a cash cow. Mm -hmm. And the whole time they just, there was no strategic empathy Uh, There was no consideration of of the Russian perspective when this was going on. It was always just seen as this kind of team building, money making, harmless thing that, of course, these countries want to join. We're all prosperous and getting better together and nobody needs to fear us. You know, not that we just invaded multiple countries without U.N. resolutions. Right. Right. So when they talk about when they when they weep and sob about the death of the, you know, rules based international order, I just tell them the U.S. dug the grave. They threw the coffin in, threw yeah. the dirt on top. Like mm-hmm. they want to act like now these these you know great power conflicts and messing with the sovereignty of other countries is out, totally out of bounds. Is like this is just ridiculous. Maybe you can get the American public who act like every day is you know the beginning of the world and mm-hmm. then you know the day starts with the new news cycle. Mm-hmm. Other countries aren't so stupid. Um, right. They have historical memories, and their historical memory is of the United States being pretty aggressive. You know, I was just reading, um, Robert Kagan, who I hate so much. He, he wrote this article for, uh, foreign policy saying, um, we should remember that, uh, Americans were very supportive of the war in Iraq, you know, the invasion of Iraq. 73% thought that we should do it because of security concerns. And it was yeah. like, yeah, you left out the part where the administration was purposefully lying about the weapons of mass destruction that were yeah. the pretext for the security concerns. You know, detail. it's like, you know, and they just, they just go right past it don't even worry about it. You know, yeah. it's, it's incredible. It's, it's really incredible because that is, that's everything. The, mm-hmm. the, the conversation is everything. The number of people who are actually going to do deep dives on this stuff is very minuscule and the odds of them changing anyone's uh, mind are very slim, frankly, um, because there's been a lot of social psychology uh, work done on this. It, it turns out that like the way our brains are hardwired, It's just it's more uh, utilitarian in terms of our evolutionary biology to just like mindlessly pick a team and cheer for it. Like your team America and then within team America, your team blue or your team red. And uh, that's all it is. And it's just the thrill you get from being part of the group and attacking the other group and having solidarity within the group. And like this is just not conducive to cosmopolitan, internationalist, globalized society, like a world without governments a world without militaries a world of just commercial interrelations like these groupish feelings these you know nationality is uh, i think it was shaw that said nationality is the idiocy inspired by belief that one's country is superior to another virtue by virtue of you having been born into it or something like i was born here and so it is more special and better than every other country right. um it's just it's just a geographical happenstance i'm all about people having great pride in their traditions and in their heritages and stuff um but i think certainly when you look at the united states it's very clear that these traditions are malleable the constitution today means something quite different to people and to elected representatives than it did 200 years ago Mm -hmm. it just it changes these are culture these are artifacts which can be manipulated and especially when you talk about discourse the discourse tends to be the truth and um Mark Esper was actually given a talk several months ago where he basically said, told this group, like, listen, we just need to start talking about Taiwan as though it is a country, as though it is an ally. Mm-hmm. And as though, of course, we're going to protect them. Like, oh, it's out of bounds to suggest that we would protect. They're just trying to create this hegemonic thought climate where right. opposition to this idea is so
2: radical that it can't be allowed airtime. Right. So you suffocate That's out it. the dissent. Right. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, we've been going for about an hour and 15. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, Joe, this has been a awesome conversation and uh, much like a lot of these foreign policy dives. um, I have to re listen because there's just so much here and so much good information. And um, I'm honored that you could come on and share a lot of this with you. So, um, or share this with my listeners and everybody else. Um, So go ahead, give your plugs and what you got cool going on. I know you're always cranking out articles and they're fantastic. And I read them and they're just full of information. So yeah, what do you got going on? Thanks, Kyle. Um, I I just got back from vacation. Um,
0: I do have a lot of kids' birthdays and things coming up. So I have a lot of work and different things, but Mm -hmm. I do have several articles coming up. Um, One just kind of about uh, the situation in Ukraine going forward. Uh, several other articles, just one on uh, glo- threats to global financial stability. Um, the other day was a record, a record at the swap lines at the Fed, um, which is a signal that there's a lot of financial stress uh, in markets. Um, and I'd written several articles about that going back. And then one of my primary things I'm working on right now is is this chapter, um, the origins of the state, nation and nation state in Europe, 1500 to 1994. Uh, so it's, it's rather long. It's like 20,000 words. Um, and that's been really chewing into my my time. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. You can find me uh, at the Mises Institute, at the Libertarian Institute. Um, you can find me on my website, on Twitter, at Solis underscore Mullen. Um, yeah, I try to I try to keep things posted there. Feel free to reach out. Um,
2: it was great being on, Kyle. I really appreciate the invite. Yeah, of course. And we'll definitely have to do another one because there's still uh, just a lot of information, a lot of stuff. And, you know, this situation with China and obviously with Ukraine and Russia as well is uh, ever changing. And it's a topic that I'm very, very passionate about and I enjoy learning about. So if you've got anything else, we'll uh, close out and I'll see you on the other side. Cool.
0: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger.